0: Andy Earle. We're here today with John Moe, the author of The Hilarious World of Depression and the host of the podcast Depression Mode with John Moe. And we're going to be talking about the warm and fuzzy topic of teenage depression. If your teenager is moody or if they have emotional swings and you wonder if they might be experiencing depression or if you have a history of depression in your family or even if you just want to get ahead of it and start bringing up this topic so that your teen feels comfortable talking about it if they ever do experience anything like depression, this episode is going to answer all your questions. We're going to look at the basics of what depression is, how it works, how you can tell whether your teen is experiencing it and whether it's something that you should confront them about or take them to see a professional. We're also going to talk about some of the problems related to depression, what we get wrong in the way that we communicate about depression and why the way that we naturally communicate about depression is really fueling a lot of the problems and we're going to talk about strategies, tactics, and tips for discussing these topics with your teenager that actually work. All that and more is coming up on the show today. John, thank you so much for making the time to be here. This is two things that I never really thought would go together. The hilarious world of depression. Talk to me about this a little bit. Where did this come from? How did this emerge? And why did those things get
1: put in the same sentence? Um, Well, I've traced that in a variety of ways, but I think it comes down to just being a a lifetime comedy nerd. My whole family is. My, My parents immigrated from Norway. And as often happens with... Immigrant families, first generation families, they, they found the best way to learn about American culture was through Laugh-In and the Carol Burnett show and some of these other comedies. So I was I was always hooked on comedy. I was always a comedy nerd. I liked how it offered a a different perspective on daily life. It found what was ridiculous and interesting and contradictory and and funny yeah. about daily life. And um And so I was, you know, I soaked up Steve Martin and Saturday Night Live and Monty Python and David Letterman, all these things, um, you know, from a very early age. And uh, I also developed a major depressive disorder at a very early age, probably around puberty, around junior high school. I didn't know what was happening. Um, I thought I was going crazy and would be sent away, or I thought that I was like, I, I thought that there was nobody else who was going through this this weird feeling um, like I was. I heard about depression being a thing, but I thought it just meant being sad, yeah. um, which is a thing that it can mean, but doesn't always. And so... Um, you know, when I grew up and I, I finally got diagnosed in my 30s um, and and became really interested in what that did to a brain. At the same time, I have worked a lot in comedy. I knew a lot of comedians. And I noticed that a lot of them would talk about depression, either right. either on stage or in conversations off stage. And so I, I started looking for the connection, uh, you know, what my kind of reporter instinct kicked in like okay what's what's going on here there's a story here and it's sort of unknowable like people say well are there more you know why are there so many comedians with depression and i don't know if if there are or if it's just a thing that they're allowed to talk about as part of their job like if a if a dentist was talking about suicidal ideation you you would probably go to a different oh, dentist but wait if you a minute yeah, right. <laughs> but if you're com- if you're a comedian's talking about it it's okay yeah. and what i found really though was it's such a hard experience to talk about it's such a words don't really do this uh, disorder justice but you can talk about what it's like to live with it and that's something that Comedians, songwriters, you know, fiction authors kind of have the the advantage of art to describe things. And and I think it really illuminates a lot. So that's that's how those came together.
0: You mentioned that it kind of emerged in junior high school. And like you have this list of things on page 76 here. Just you're talking about um, this, what you call the if I could just mentality. Uh-huh. <laughs> And, you know, some like things in here that uh, if I could just land the lead in the high school play, if I could just be accepted into a good college, if I could just land the lead in the college play, <laughs> mm-hmm. if I could just be accepted into graduate school, this never ending cycle of thinking that the next thing is kind of going to make us happy or something. Um, is that what kind of led into um, your depression or uh,
1: well, it's it's a fallacy. It's one of the many fallacies about depression that you can achieve your way out of it. And uh, since I started talking about this and and making podcasts and writing about this, I've met so many people who who share this uh, this opinion that they're always one success away from never having to worry about depression again and of course depression doesn't care what kind of success you have um it's not like that it's not based on achievement it's not based on your resume or your income it's a mental disorder it just it all it does is it just wants to kill you (laughs) and like when I was uh making appearances when the book first came out I did an event a virtual event in Washington DC and uh I was joined by uh, Sean Doolittle, who's a pitcher for the Reds now, was a pitcher for the Washington Nationals when they won the World Series, and he said, "Okay, this is what it's like." He like because you know I was always like a play or a job away. He's like, "Let me let me show you what it's like." And for for Sean, it was if I could make the major leagues, mm. then this will all go away. And so he somehow makes a major league roster. Okay, if I can, um, if I can make an all star team. Yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, I, I got to be know, the nobody, best guy on the team now. now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, nobody who's an all star would would have this kind of thing yeah. makes the all star team. Well, maybe that was a fluke. So uh, I need to make a second all star team. Makes a second all star team. And he's like, maybe you know, maybe it's postseason success. If I could just get to the postseason, goes to the postseason, and he. Played a huge role in winning the World Series for the Washington Nationals. And he said that after that, and then after reading my book around the same time, he thought, huh, maybe it's not, maybe it has nothing to do with achievement. Maybe I need to fi- fix what's inside and that will lead to some success. And thankfully for him, it has.
0: I love uh, how you phrase this in your book. You say on page 85, you can't achieve your way to happiness. You can't win your way out of depression. This does not prevent smart people from thinking that way. Uh, it's a, just such an easy trap to fall into. And especially in our culture, I think, um, it um, we just put so much emphasis on achievement as a means to happiness or a means of fulfillment or uh, status, you know? And so I wonder like, I think for teenagers, you know, how how can we buffer them against that? Or um what can parents do to kind of notice that sort of thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I currently I have two teenagers. Uh I have a twenty year old and a thirteen year old. So I'm kind of on the the brackets of okay. the yep. of teenage dumb, and then I have an eighteen year old as well. Um I think the the biggest mistake that that people make is dismissing the psychic weight of what somebody of that age is going through to say oh well you know you'll forget all about this when you grow up it's you know totally none none of this matters
0: and of course trivialize their experience like
1: yeah and and then all you're doing then is creating uh, well possibly an an enemy because you're being a jerk but you're also creating this dissonance of like, well, then how, what can I trust? What experiences am I having? Because this feels huge to me because it is huge. Um, So I think that's, that's thing one. Um, And then I, I try to talk to my kids about why messages are, are in different forms of our culture, not just in media, but in, in schools and all, all these things like, like okay if someone keeps saying you need to work incredibly hard work your butt off to go to go get a, a a great job like what are they trying to get from you are they trying to get obedience from you to make their day easier are are they trying to get you to knock yourself out because it will reflect well on them you know are they trying to get you to buy into a capitalist culture where you're defined by how much money you make for other people. Like what is, what's the motivation of the person doing the talking? Is there money involved? Is there control involved? And I think the more you can get at that, the more that uh, a young person can start thinking, okay, well, what message do I want to listen to what works well for me? What's to my advantage? How can I lead the, the kind of life I want to lead? And so they develop more agency uh, in those situations. I like that. Yeah. And pointing at talking about um,
0: specific messages that they're receiving and um breaking it down. Like who's, who's saying that? where's that coming from? Where's the funding coming from for this entire right. publication? Who's paying for that?
1: Yeah. I, I look at the, at the education system and you know, my, my daughter was born with dwarfism. She's a little person and okay. she lives in a world that wasn't designed for people of her Uh, proportions. And so she has to adapt to that world all the time. Uh, My, my son is, is uh, on the autism spectrum. And he's always had to deal with an educational system that wants you to adhere to the norms. And if you don't do that, then you're bad. And then you're, you know, then you get a bad grade. And it's, it's not always the way his brain works. Um, but there's a, it's, it's enforced to be sort of neurotypical because that makes the day easier for the, the teacher. It makes the test scores and the testing process smoother. So that is a ticket to the school getting funding. Like, like, you know, I, I tell them like, yeah, there's times you're really going to have to conform and it sucks, but, uh, let's take a look at at what's motivating those efforts on those people's part, because then you could get as much of an advantage as you can. That's interesting. What, what do you mean by that? Like, well, Well, that, that if, um, if you are, if you don't fit the mold in say a public high school, you're, you're neurodivergent, you're, uh, you're outside of the norm with your, uh, sexual identity, your gender identity, um, the different things that, that make you, you, that sometimes in the course of the academic side, the social side, the kind of role in that ersatz community that, uh, you have to navigate, okay, here's where I need to blend. Here's where I need to assert myself. Here's where I need to carve a different path. And, And it's uh, it's easy to forget uh, if you if you are from an advantaged group that for a lot of these people, that's conscious effort all the time. Similarly to if you happen to have the disorder of major depression or if you have the disorder of uh, OCD or generalized anxiety anxiety. it's an extra burden that you have to navigate because you're outside the mainstream. If you're a teenager, you have to do this because, you know, you're, you're treated like an adult. When you're walking down the street, you can be arrested like an adult when you're walking down the street, but you don't, you don't have the same experiences and you don't have the same uh, abilities that, that other people do. So it becomes a matter of like, consciously navigating, which, uh, which can be a lot of work.
0: So there's a a scene in your book where your wife confronts you about just your moods. And she says, I'm worried about you. Um, You seem to be doing worse and worse. I don't think it needs to be this way. I think you might be depressed and I think
1: you should go to the doctor.
0: How did that go?
1: Well, it went as, as written. I have a depression that is in control, you know, after a lot of trial and error to find a way of managing it. But at the time, I didn't realize that I had a depression that is closely linked to stress. So that when stress ramps up, my instinct isn't to like, you know, bear down and, and blast through it or, or right. anything like that. It's to get, it's to just withdraw and like get drained of my, my energy and drained of my emotional life and often become really, really uh, peevish. And Kurt, I was, I, my kids were young at the time and I would just have a, you know, I, there was no violence, but I was not even all that much yelling, but I was just nasty. And so it was getting worse and worse. It was a situation where, uh, I had, you know, I had a, we owned a home, we had multiple kids. I had a job that I needed to take seriously. And so suddenly all this, you know, everything in my life was, was a source of stress. And I, um, I began withdrawing from from friends you know they would they would say hey let's go out and get lunch and i would think well no i'm a terrible person they're not going to want to have lunch with me i'm going to save them the effort of that that terrible experience i'm just gonna cut myself off and you know come to find out later they were reaching out to me because they were concerned um but yeah it was it was building to a head and when she said that hey go to a doctor i said well i don't I don't want to waste the doctor's time, even though that's the reason why doctors exist. I don't want to pay a copay, which at the time was a $10 copay. <laughs> I wasn't worth a Hamilton to myself. Yeah, and, right. um, and I said, but, and also I'm not, I'm not sad. So it couldn't be depression. And I didn't really understand the, the condition. And I went and got diagnosed pretty quickly and felt an incredible amount of relief because yeah. this thing had a name and there were treatment options available. And you weren't the only one feeling this. Like
0: you had felt when you were younger, uh, um, there are other people with the same yeah. experience.
1: We often, we often say, um, you're not so special. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. That, right. You know, you're, you're part of a, a huge percentage of people. So it didn't like
0: immediately ring true to you when she said, I think you're depressed that, Oh, that's what it is. It took like, I mean, did she have to kind of cajole you to get you to, to go
1: to the appointment or what? Well, I mean, I had confused the mood of depression with the disorder of depression, which is a very common thing. A lot of people do it. Um, you know, you're like, if your team loses the Super Bowl. And you're really bummed out about it. That's not depression. That, that means you're healthy. Something, yeah. something very disappointing happened to you and you're feeling it. That means your, your parts work. You know, if, if you used to love football and, and just stare at it blankly now, that might be a sign. But, um, but yeah, no, I resisted it. And she said, well, Okay, so you don't care enough about yourself to go do this. Do you care about me and the kids? I said, Yeah, I love you and the kids, of course. She said, Okay, great, do it for us then. And that was enough for me to to get me in the door. Little did I know, I would it would become my profession. I would go pro. I was so good at being depressed, I would turn pro. And <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, the idea of doing it for for somebody else worked for me. Mm. So I just foresee something
0: like that possibly um, with parents too, you know, that could be a difficult conversation if you think that your teenager is experiencing depression. Um, having, having that talk, I guess you have a little bit more control as a parent to say, hey, we're going to the doctor. <laughs> I guess. Well, but, you're setting the tone, uh,
1: I think um, on how to approach it. But, but I think with, a, you know, I, i host a show called uh depression mode with john mo and on the show that on a show that was recently on it was all about having difficult conversations Uh, in particular difficult conversations with a loved one that you're concerned about and i think um approaching somebody and, and saying especially especially in a family where if someone is experiencing depression, there's probably some relative in the not too recent past or in the not too distant past who has gone through the same thing, you know, or at least a friend or uh, somebody around and just say, you know, right now with COVID um, and, and the, the trauma that COVID was and climbing out of it, people are reporting depression in huge numbers you could say, like, you know, and and I was. This is this is me as the helpful parent who's a little uh, a little shy saying this. I was surprised to find out it's not what I thought it was. It's not, you know, moping around all the time. It can be an inability to focus. It can be a short temper. It can be. Uh, loss of sleep it can mean relationships changing it can mean so many things but what's cool is there's all these ways to treat it and you people with it eventually find one that works and and I think that opens that up a little bit to to a lot of people the idea that you can be feeling better than you do now and um there there are options available to you
0: you're talking about your brother who committed suicide rick and one thing that happens after he his death is that you uh, are tasked with writing his obituary and what i thought was really interesting about this whole scenario was that you well though your first draft was very different than the draft that um and eventually got published why was yeah. that
1: well i in the first draft i wrote I told the whole truth. I said that he had struggled with drugs um, from, from an early age and uh, that he died by suicide um, because I felt like uh, telling the truth. I felt like being blunt about it. And, and as, a, as a writer, sometimes you need to upset people and I wanted people to be upset. And it, because it was it was unjust to me that this had happened, that he had struggled with this illness, that he had received not enough treatment, not good enough treatment, yeah. and um, and he died as a result. And I wanted people to know that this is what can happen with an untreated mental illness. This is what can happen with addiction, and that he had, uh, you know. Part of the reason he died was that he thought that he had really failed, um, that that he had been too weak or too not brave enough. And he had a he had an illness. Um, And it's a little like saying, well, something I hate is this idea that if you have cancer and you're brave enough and tough enough, the cancer will go away. That's not how cancer works, and that's not how. I mean, you can be aggressive in your treatment, and that might lead to some good things, but but it's not a matter of how much you care or how tough you are. And mental illness is the same way. It's it doesn't care um, about any of that. It it's a thing that happened to you. It's like saying, you know, well, if you were just braver, then you wouldn't have. broken leg you know like once you once you go for a walk and smile more and then you won't have a break broken leg yeah of course i will yeah
0: so you can't positive think your way out of depression nor can you achieve your way out of depression
1: (laughs) no no it's it's not a it's not a thing that you make decisions around it's a thing that you make decisions on how to respond to but you know nobody would choose depression or OCD or an eating disorder or a broken leg, um, but it happens. And then it's a matter of how you're going to respond. But then I think that
0: the, I guess your family kind of edited the obituary a little bit before it got published and just sort of sort of removed some of those sentences. Yeah. Um,
1: my, my mom wanted, didn't want that part in there and I didn't have you know, I didn't have much fight in me at that point. So I just said, okay. Um, but instead I'll just keep talking about it and go for the write rest an entire life. book and publicize <laughs> yeah, the entire incident yeah. to the world. <laughs> yeah. Here's that first draft. It's coming out through uh, St. Martin's Press.
0: <laughs> but I think that it, it, it goes to kind of the heart of this issue that it, it, depression is such a thing that there's such a taboo around it that it feels like we can't talk about it. And that even when it happens, we want to hide it from the world. And, um, that is part of the cycle that makes people feel like, um, nobody else's, nobody else has felt this way. Like you felt when you were younger. Um, and I think it's a disservice to,
1: to all of us, but, um,
0: I don't know how to break
1: the cycle. Well, there's, it's, it's funny the the word that people often use is stigma, that there's a stigma around the issue. And um, I have a friend who said, you know, why don't we just call it discrimination? Because that's what it is. Um, you know, or prejudice, because it's making a decision about a person based on something that is beyond their control. Yep. And you know, we have words for that in the English language and we don't need a special one for, for mental illness. It's, it's unfair, it's bias, it's stigma, it's, or it's, you know, prejudice, it's discrimination. So yeah, it's, uh, and, and the more that happens, it's not just a matter of, uh, effectively using words or, uh, having a sentence mean what you say it means. It's a matter of life and death, I think, if people learn that a person died by suicide and there's nothing about suicide in their obituary, if there's nothing about mental illness in the obituary, then that person says, oh, okay, those are bad things that have to be covered up. Those are shameful. There's nothing shameful about it. And and that's what really bugs me. And And so... The, the more it gets covered up and the more it's the more that discrimination occurs, the more that person suffers, um, you know, diseases love to fester and, and uh, it just makes things worse. It was a real simple moment for me at the, at the memorial service we had for Rick, where I just thought, okay, if we don't talk about these things, then people will die. And Rick died in part because there was no one uh, honest and helpful to talk to either because he didn't seek them out or because he was in the worst possible position to seek them out. Um, But if we do talk about them, if he had talked to better doctors, better therapists, more doctors, more therapists, more friends, more family, he could have been alive. He could have got through that day and then maybe there would be other days and he'd turn the corner. So talking about it, is bad Uh, talking about it is, is potentially very helpful. Not talking about it is potentially very harmful. This is an easy decision to make society. Like why (laughs) in the world are we making the dumb choice in, in this conundrum? Yeah. As you, as you say here
0: in your book, um, we freely elect not to talk about it. It's like we could administer the polio vaccine by saying the words polio vaccine, but elected not to do that, I guess, to respect polio's <laughs> privacy.
1: <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. That's good. That's pretty good.
0: Hey, we're here with John Moe talking about the hilarious world of teenage depression. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: Well, so much of therapy, whether it's EMDR or talk therapy or you know, a lot of other things, it's about retraining your brain to not go to bad places. Right, and feeling bad sometimes is a sign of health. Totally. You know, it's if you care about things, then you're kind of, yeah, your machinery is working.
0: I feel like we hear this a lot from teenagers just saying things like, oh my God, my life is over. This is the worst thing yeah. ever. I can't believe you're the worst parent in the world. Yeah, I can't believe you never let me. D-. Um, so how, I mean, is there some sort of a way that we can respond to these sort of things?
1: <laughs> You want you want me to come up with a way of making teenagers less dramatic and polarized in their thinking and talking. Yeah,
0: yeah, what, Is there like a kind of a just a two sentence sort of little like a cheat code we could give parents or
1: how does that work? If there was, don't you think I would be a billionaire by now? <laughs> <laughs> um I you know the part of the benefit for me of having three kids is just realizing the randomness of life because my kids have all handled those feelings and those situations in completely different ways. They were raised in the same house by the same parents and ate the same food for dinner as each other. You know, this has been going on forever. You know, I find that the ideal in those situations is empathy and patience and to try to get a realistic look at the scale of this person's life. And I say the ideal because I cannot always practice this. I often fall short because I'm a human being. And because when someone's yelling at me, uh, even if they're my kid, I don't like being yelled at. (laughs) I say so. Um, But if I'm in a tough situation Like I just turned 53. I have a long catalog of all the tough situations I've been in. I know what happened after them. I know what the recovery looked like. I know that there was a recovery and I know what, what pain is. And I know that it can get better. A lot of this stuff is new to a young person and they don't have that. knowledge. And that is, that's huge. Like they don't have that. They could be told that, but they haven't felt that. And so I try to be sympathetic, empathetic. I try to think about times when I've been in similar situations at a similar age, and you know, I I try to concentrate on my breathing. Um, you know, it's it's the oldest thing in the world, but it's you know the basis of meditation is conscious breath. And so, like, if I have nothing to say to to help in that situation, I try to just stay in the moment and think about my breath because sometimes it's better to think about that than what an angry 16-year-old's telling you.
0: <laughs> Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.